Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Last Rock, 8th end, up by 2. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. chill it, Ben. Don't chill it. Don't chill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out. As a champion, cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, welcome again, everybody, to another episode of Inside Curling with me, Jungle Jim Jerome, and of course, our two World Curling Hall of Famers, Warren Hanson and Kevin Martin. Uh, before we thank our sponsors, Kev, go Oilers. <laughs> That's right. Go Oilers. Yeah, they're doing well. <laughs> Poor Hanson's on the West Coast there, you know, Vancouver, not so much, but uh, the Oilers squeak by in Game 7. So we want to thank Sports Interaction for what's happening around the curling world, and Nestle Boost, the sponsor of Mailbag, Cody Tractor. Brings you hot rock topics, and story time is brought to you by Meridian. And we've got a guest. Thank you to Goldline Curling Equipment for bringing you that guest today. We'll surprise you. We'll surprise you. The World Juniors Championship got underway on Sunday, May fifteenth, in Jan Koping, Sweden. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. The World Curling Federation also announced a couple of weeks ago that it has renewed its marketing relationship with Infront Sports and Media, which has been in place since two thousand and eight. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. I, di- I didn't even realize that they would perhaps have a marketing arm. Uh, Warren, you can tell us about that. Hot Rock Topics. Is it hot? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this past week, Brad Gushu announced that EJ Harden will be joining his team at second, which again brought some focus on the Curling Canada residency rules. Are we ever going to figure this out? Okay, uh, well, we'll try again today. Mailbag. We got an email that talks about Possibly the television networks adding another little flair to their coverage. In the house, I'll tell you who it is. The manager of the Kelowna Curling Club, one of the most successful clubs in Canada. Jock Tire has been doing it for 30 plus years. He's going to join us and tell us about what they're doing to be so successful. So we look forward to talking to Jock. Kevin, you're back on with your story. You got a good one? Oh, I think so, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How come I never get to tell a story, Warren? Next week. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you tell a story, Jimmy, that could be something else. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I just can't keep it under five minutes. Thanks, everyone, for your emails. We love to get them. We we use them. We read them. And it's a part of our show each and every week. Email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. What's happening around the curling world? Let's get to it. Brought to you by Sports Interaction. Providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. 
you got to be 19 or over to play, and we want you to play responsibly. Warren, what he got for us? The World Juniors kicked off this past weekend. Yes, the World Juniors started on Sunday in Jönköping, Sweden. So it's just in the early going. On the women's side, Canada is represented by Isabel Ladisser from Northern Ontario. So far, the women have played two games. Not so good in the first one. They lost to Scotland 9-7, but they got it together for game number two. Defeated Switzerland by a score of 8-6, to and they will play Latvia later today as this is being recorded on Monday. On the men's side, Canada's being represented by Owen Purcell from Nova Scotia. The men have played three games. Didn't get off to a very good start. Interesting score. They lost 11-10 to 10 to the USA. Wow. But in game number two, they went down to defeat at the hands of Germany, 7-2. to two. But in game three, they did get it together and defeated Italy 6-3. to three. So the men are sitting at 1-2. and two. Play continues till next weekend when a round robin is completed. The top four teams will advance to the playoffs. So that's what's happening at the World Juniors. Warren, before we leave this, what's can they, what what's Canada's program like for the, for the juniors? You know, in the high performance, right? We've seen now that all these other countries have caught up to us. There's no guarantee. Canada hasn't done that well this year in the big events. What what's the junior program like, Warren? Pretty good. Yes, I think it is. Uh, we've done pretty well at the World Juniors in recent years. We've won a number of titles. Tyler Tardy being the most prominent of of the teams that have been victorious in recent times. It's interesting with the juniors. I've been talking to people a lot about this uh, in the last little while. And Joel Kratz, who's playing third on the Canadian team in Jan Koping, uh, him and I have exchanged quite a bit of information. And uh, we'll talk about that maybe in the next show, that the juniors, interesting enough, they're doing much the same type of thing that the adults are. They're jumping around a bit. They're forming teams with uh, players from different provinces and moving to universities in certain areas to do so, et cetera. It's it's quite fascinating. So we'll Mm -hmm. maybe talk about that uh, in our next show. Cool. Kevin, were you like seven years old when you won your first junior event? I I did start when I was seven, actually, but I had to push out of the hack with two feet to get the rock to the other end. (laughs) But that is when I started. Seven, I started curling in league when I was eight. And then I started skipping in men's when I was 12. So I was kind of a weird, uh, weird kid. Wow. It'd be like stick curling, Warren. You just have your guy gets in the hack and someone comes up behind you and pushes you down the ice. <laughs> uh, cool stuff. Uh, Warren, I didn't know this, as I mentioned at the top, that the World Curling Federation uses a media and marketing company called Infront. They renewed their agreement with them. It started back in 2008. What is this, Warren? What is Infront and what, what do they do? What's their role? Well, first of all, Infront is a it's a big company. They're based in Switzerland, but they have offices around the world. I think they have 1,000 employees. They're involved in various aspects of the marketing end of sport. Things they do is media production, sponsorship sales, digital solutions. And they have had an agreement with the World Curling Federation since 2008. So many of the sponsors you'll see on the world stage, and I'll, I'll mention a couple, LGT Bank, Grie Cheese, those are all sponsorships that have come through the in-front relationship. So they've been around since 2008. WCF signing this new agreement with them through till 2030. I might also add, by my memory, that Infront also acts in a marketing capacity for every other winter Olympic sport. So I think curling was the last one through that door in 2008. This company's history, they go back to 2003. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about that for a second because it's unique to curling. Curling Canada once had a marketing agent. They don't any longer. The World Federation now is the only one I'm aware of that actually employs an agent. Should Curling Canada have one? 
Well, we did initially, and, and it got moved to being an internal operation. And uh, I think today there's a number of people that work internally for Curling Canada. That's their expertise. That's their professional uh, line of work. And uh, I think that's worked pretty well for them. So I don't think they are in that need, but uh, time may come along in the future that they might. Okay, good stuff. That's interesting. Uh, speaking of Curling Canada, Warren, they're putting on a symposium about grassroots curling and diversity. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a big item, and this is going to be happening in Niagara Falls, May 26th to 28th at the Crown Plaza Hotel there. And it's probably going to be the most collective and crucial conversations about grassroots curling uh, in recent memory. Curling Canada is inviting all curling facility leaders, managers, board members, and grassroots leaders to the table to be part of this conversation. So it should be a very interesting three-day event, and if anyone is interested, you should probably contact Curling Canada and get yourself registered. Kevin, could I push you over the falls in a barrel? <laughs> That's a big falls. And I'm scared of heights. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, I guess I wouldn't know I'd be scared of heights. I'm in a barrel. That's because everyone wants to push me over the falls in a barrel. That's what we're getting to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've ever been to Niagara Falls. Have you, Kev? Oh, I, yes. I, I really enjoy it. And, yep. um, and our youngest daughter goes to school in Buffalo, which is basically a 15, 20-minute drive from uh, the University at Buffalo to the Niagara Falls on the U.S. side. So we go quite often, actually, Jimmy. I love it. Cool. And how's your daughter doing, by the way, Kev, quickly? She's over her injury and, and back pitching? Yeah, well, she's trying to get over that injury. It's uh, tough. She had a shoulder surgery, uh, labrum tear, and uh, or a labrum separation, actually. So it's it's coming along. It's coming along. She's probably around 70%, something like that. So, yeah, it's a tough injury to get over when you're a pitcher, a, sh a shoulder surgery. But she's having fun. And uh, that's what matters, I think. Cool. Uh, we'll keep watching for her. Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. This is not the first time we've talked about this. Uh, it is the residency rule that has been back and forth debated. Warren, you've been pretty outspoken about this. And Kev, you're going to have something to say. More recently, Team Brad Gushu announced EJ Harden would join the St. John-based team to replace Brett Gallant after his departure to join Brendan Botcher. The problem is created because Harden lives in Northern Ontario and Lee Jeff Walker resides in Alberta, and the rule states clearly that only one member of the team can live in another province. So that math doesn't add up. In a message to Canadian press, Gushu suggested that Walker would be renting an apartment in Newfoundland, acquiring a health card, a driver's license, and joining a curling club there. This story made a number of papers across the country, including the Toronto Star. Uh, so here we go again, Kevin. Uh, what do you think of this whole situation? Gushu is currently the number one ranked team in the world, uh, yet he's being made to jump through hoops, all sorts of hoops, actually, again, to keep his team as competitive as possible when he goes to defend his Briar title. Lots of meat on the bone there, uh, Kev. You go first. There sure is a lot of meat on that bone. And, you know, for Brad, yeah, you want to get the best team on that ice as possible and picking up EJ Harnden. We talked about it on Inside Curling many weeks ago. I don't even know, a couple of months ago, that that, that made the most sense. And it does. EJ's a wonderful person and a super strong sweeper and a really good shooter. So for Brad, um, trying to make a team good enough to, yes, win the Briar again, but to try to beat Nick Adine and Bruce Mowat. That's that's the goal. It's nothing to do with Canada. We, you know, in order to win and get to the top of the podium in our sport, you have to build a team good enough to beat Nicodine, Bruce Mowat, and, and and John Schuster, and so on, so on, so on. All these really good teams. You need to build that team. And this residency rule it really makes it difficult. 
to stay within the the rules of the of the game in Canada, and it really hurts our curlers trying to build a team good enough to to compete. And, and it's no different on the women's side either. It's a matter of they keep bringing in new weird little rules to make it a little easier or whatever. But to me, just get rid of it completely and and, and let teams build the best possible team. I, I think that's got to be the way going forward eventually because we, we want to make sure that we allow our best curlers like Brad Guju the very best chance to win at the world level. We as a Canadian, I, I really want to see our players win. And the only way you can beat teams that practice 12 months a year, seven days a week, is to be able to build the best team possible. And, and right now we're sort of handicapping our, our teams a little bit. Warren, Brad, ironically, Brad Gushu has been advocating for uh, the Briar to stay with provinces getting in there. Uh, this looks a little a little bit of a conflict that he's saying, but how do you fix all this, Warren? Well, it's probably more complicated than many people even realize. And I wrote a piece on our Facebook group a couple of days ago outlining all of it. I again agree the best possible teams have to be able to be created. I guess I'll first of all start about with a funding issue. And at the national end, we're all very aware that uh, Curling Canada receives funding from Sport Canada and the Canadian Olympic Committee. And the amount of money they receive in any given year is pretty much based on how they've done at the world level and in particular at the Olympic level. And this is very competitive because there's 58 NSOs today, national sporting organizations in Canada, and they're all competing for that same dollar. So it's important for Canada to get to the top of the podium. At the same time, when this whole system was developed many years ago, kind of a ecosystem was created at the provincial level in most provinces. And, and though it shouldn't have been, they started to place the same emphasis on how players in any sport from that province do at the national international level determines how much funding these provincial sport bodies get. So when you begin to open things up to the degree we're maybe suggesting, uh, you start to impact as to how their funding is going to be uh, impacted. The other side that creates a problem is the bigger provinces, and particularly I'd go Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, they have started to market their provincial championships in both the Scotties and the Briar to sponsors and to television. And as a result, there has become a lot of money attached to this very aspect as well as far as their fundraising is concerned. So I'll give Alberta's example. They certainly want Brendan Botcher and Kevin Cooey to be in their provincials because that's going to make it more saleable. You take them out of that, it's going to impact it. So rightly or wrongly, this is another consideration that uh, comes into the mix of things. It should have, in my opinion, been attacked a long time ago and to begin to resolve all these issues and to make it a little more streamlined than it, than it is. And it seems like it's it's like the North American power grid. It's kind of one building block built on another. And if you pull one of those building blocks out, the whole thing could collapse. But it's a real issue, and it's something that needs to be dealt with. But I'm not sure what the solution in the short term is going to be. I, Warren, the, the way the curling is now to get to the briar, if I looked at the sport of golf, the parallel would be if I won the Northern Ontario Amateur, according to curling rules, I'd get to play in the Canadian Open. <laughs> I'd get killed. <laughs> well, I think, again, it needs to be all rehashed and reworked through. I think there's, a, just like with the Masters and the British Open, there is a, a space in those events for the top amateurs. And everybody knows they're not going to win it. But in many cases, they do very well. And I think this is, again, back our big problem. We've, we've got to draw a line between the few very, very good teams and players and everybody else. And those that are aspiring to maybe become, but those aren't 
others that are maybe pretty good, but really are never are never going to reach the level that uh, the top guys are because they aren't going to dedicate the time or the energy. There's probably lots of people that could be on the PGA Tour if they dedicated the time to it. So it's the same kind of situation, but it continues here right now. We, we, we continue to throw everybody into the same bag and shake it and think that something's going to come out of it. Uh, we've created a lot of animosity. You can read our Facebook group. A lot of people are, are really sometimes attacking the top players. Who do they think they are? They don't deserve this. They shouldn't have that. And that, that shouldn't be the situation at all. All those top players have dedicated hours and hours and hours of their lives to become who they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, the huge sacrifices that you have to make to become the top of any sport. And then you still don't know you're going to make it. So it's not fair to be critical of them either. They're just trying to do what they have to do to become the best and compete, as Kevin says, with uh, the Bruce Mowats and the Nicodines of the world. Right. Kev, what do you say about all this? Is it time to get rid of the provincial boundaries? It's not the first time we've brought this up, but... What are your thoughts, Kevin? My thoughts, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love the sport of curling, everything about it, and 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 I, and I enjoyed playing in the briar many times. So yes, uh, it's all important, but we really need to, to Warren's point, a separation. We need that. It's it's desperate. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? That has to be that big table conversation. And and you know, for some reason, I I still don't know that that conversation is happening yet this summer. So we've been banging that drum, trying to you know get the different groups to to just phone each other and meet somewhere and have this conversation about our sport because it's very very important. Um, you know, we can see that we're 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 not competing at the world level like we would hope we. We could. Part of that is is uh, the sport and the, the system. So um, what exactly should we do, Jim? I think there's definitely a, a line that has to be drawn and the top teams, you know, that want to compete at the highest level in the world stage, great. But then we need the, the building blocks in our country so that the young people continue to, we continue to have the flow of really good young curlers coming up and not impeded by where they live or, or what they do. So uh, I think that's important. Let us know what you think, insidecurling at gmail.com. Thank you to Coyote Tractor for bringing you the Hot Rock Topics. Uh, Let's move along now. Got the mailbag brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. And I'm still drinking it, and it's still working. This is from Geary. Uh, My question has to do with uh, TV game coverage and specifically with the info that is being provided. Sometimes we are shown the hog-to-hog times. Uh, but this only happens a couple of times throughout the game. Why can't the networks put this as a standard fixture in one corner of the screen for every shot? And while they're at it, maybe they can show backline to hog line and speed at release as well. Most curlers serious about improving their game have some sort of speed trap device nowadays, so they have this kind of information available during their practices. Surely any TV production should be able to set something up to provide this to viewers. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, we do show it a few times uh, during a broadcast, the hog to hog. It was the NBC coverage. Um, we actually covered the uh, back line to first hog initial split time as well, some. I'm not sure the benefits of, of just having it on, on air continually. And when you practice, it is good to, to have some sort of uh, timing blocks. But I don't know if you want to use those speed traps that much. It's a touch game. And uh, I, we would time practice a little bit over my 30 years of practice, but um, I'd like to be able to go out there and, and hit the button, you know, 49 out of 50 
without any help, <laughs> just throwing, whisk sweeping, and go button, 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 button. And that's, that's in my way, the, the best way to get to be good at curling. And, and that's, I, I've never used any sort of tracking mechanism um, in any practice I've been part of in, in all my years. But I know they do use it at the varsity of the University of Alberta at Savile. I see them with speed traps, and, and that's fine. I just don't think you should use them very much. Uh, you want It's a touch game. You need to be able to feel what you're doing. You know, you hear Brad Gushu, who's one of the best, if not the best curler right now in our, on the planet. You know, his team, when they're in the hack, they don't talk a whole bunch about time. They talk about, Brad, just in this spot, throw two feet more. So he knows how to feel two feet more, two feet less a foot less, same weight. And, and it's just a field game. It's not, well, throw this rock 14.2. Well, yes, that, that could work as well, but it's hard to equate the end of your fingers and touch to a number. So that's the only thing I worry about with youth is that they're getting really, really, uh, they, they rely a lot on numbers and not so much on their fingers. And I, I, I worry about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Since the players got mic'd up, Kevin, and I've been watching curling my whole life, you brought up that 14-2, throw an 11, throw a 14. What, what does that mean, Kevin? What, what are they doing? Because that number, you hear it all the time. Well, and that's what, this, that's what Gary's talking about, which is great. And I appreciate saying the email because it matters, a 4.0 initial split. That's from the back line to the hog line. How long it takes for the rock to get from the back line to the hog line, that's a certain speed. Now, if it's 4.5 seconds, that would be a big difference, but just for easy sake, Obviously, that rock is going much slower from the back line to the hog line, so the ice is v- much quicker if that speed is going to get to the button. Whereas it's three and a half seconds, that rock is going much faster from the back line to the hog line, so that the ice is heavier, and that's how you can gauge the speed of the ice. Now, same with hog to hog times. Uh, in most arena ice is very consistent from game to game for an entire event. I remember at the Olympics in Vancouver, my draw weight, I always wore a really slow slider, but my, my initial split was 3.62. That would be on the button for the entire event. Wow, okay. <laughs> that was draw weight to the button. My initial split of 3.62. So no need to show that again and again and again and again because it, it just didn't change for me during that event. Now, obviously, somebody with a real fast slider is not going to be able to throw 3.62. The initial split is very individual. Those times are individual. So if uh, somebody with a really fast slider, like Mark Kennedy, say, he'd be more around 4.0 when I'm 3.62, but we're making the same draw on the same sheet of ice to the button. Is this too technical, Jimmy, or you got it? No, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. But that's what I mean. And so... Whereas hog to hog is static, so it's not individual. It is what it is. Hog to hog time, it doesn't matter if you slide out really fast and then pull back on the rock or if you slide really slow and give the rock a little extra before the hog line, that hog to hog is still consistent on that sheet. You know I'm simple, Kevin, and you've made it simple. I understand. <laughs> Does the speed of the ice worn change during a game? Not to the degree it once did, but it can, yes. If, if you happen to get uh, particular probably temperature changes, uh, you, it can vary. Things you have to watch for in a, in a building where there's four sheets of ice uh, on the go and all of a sudden three are gone and only one is left. It has an impact on the temperature and that may impact the speed. So these are things that you got to be considering at all times. Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, I got a quick story about that. So in 1991, Briar is our first Briar. We're, uh, we're out on the ice playing Rick Lang. It was a really important game, and we were down a couple, not curling very well. They, they probably were going to win. But then some, now this is what I was told, is that the, uh, Warren might know, 
is that the big doors were opened up in the building. This was in Cops Coliseum in 91 to bring in, I think, something for a banquet, uh -oh. Warren, or something. Yep. <laughs> so the big doors open up and the humidity pours into the building and all of a sudden the ice is absolutely thick with frost and the ice went really heavy. I forget what it would have been to get the rock down the other end, but super heavy. So Rick Lang's team, they're more touch players, not throwing bullets. All of a sudden, they're having trouble knocking some of our rocks out. I remember Rick Lang. I love Rick, but Rick Lang is throwing. I think it was an intern. He'd remember this exactly. He was throwing a hit, and it ended up guarding our stone perfectly in the house. That's how heavy the ice <laughs> was. <laughs> and, awesome. and we ended up winning that game, and that actually got us into the playoffs. If we lose to Rick, I don't think we make the playoffs in the 91 Briar, which means we wouldn't have went to the 92 Olympics. So that, that door opening up was huge for our team because we were a bunch of young guys who could throw it hard. Yep. And Rick's team couldn't throw it hard. And that made the difference in that game, which gave us the playoff spot. And we ended up winning that briar to go to the Olympic Games in 92. Yeah, and I can recall that that was inadvertently done by somebody that was delivering something to the building, and there was, for some reason, no one around at the, at the door that should have been from the ice-making crew, and the guy just came in and opened the door, and uh, by the time anybody realized what was going on, it was uh, already a problem. So who do I owe? Like, I'd love to pay that guy <laughs> to open that door, because yeah, <laughs> it definitely made a big difference to our curling careers. You've given uh, curling teams, Kev, if they're, if they're behind the eight ball and they're getting killed, they just tell their sweepers, listen, you guys, while well, you're over the rock sweeping, breathe really heavy <laughs> onto the ice. We want to create yeah. We want to create some humidity. I'll never forget that. That was 1991. That was a long time ago. But that ice just changed. We talked about changing ice. That changed completely. Uh, great email. Thanks a lot for that. And uh, good stuff, you guys. That's brought to you by Nestle Boost. In the House is brought to you by Goldline Curling Equipment. It can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, and Mississauga, and there's two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event anytime at goldline.com. Uh, our guest, Kevin, the manager of the Kelowna Curling Club, Jock Tire, has been doing it for 84 years now. He's been the manager at the Kelowna Curling Club. You guys have some history, Kevin. Tell us about Jock. Well, we got history in lots of ways um, with uh, teaching. Jock came to Edmonton quite a few years in a row, actually, with the uh, our summer curling academy. Jock's been uh, coach in junior curling for quite a few years as well. Actually, uh, 30 years of managing the Kelowna Curling Club. And that goes all the way back to sitting on the exact same piece of carpet for the 92 and the 93 Blue Jays uh, win at the... Uh, World Series. So, oh, sure. yeah, 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 all the way back to then. So, anyway, yes, Jock Tyre and I have a great history. He's a terrific guy and a wonderful manager of uh, one of the biggest curling clubs in uh, in the world. Come on in, Jock. How are you, man? I'm great. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, good. Nice to talk to you. Uh, uh, Warren and I were chatting last night, Jock, and you've got the distinction of the Kelowna Curling Club when a bunch of other clubs are shutting down. I know Toronto lost a few. I know my hometown Sudbury lost a club or two. 
How come you guys are so successful? How do you get that distinction as the best curling club in Canada? I don't know if we're the best, but we try the hardest. Uh, we got big hearts, and uh, you know, I think it's just a little bit of marketing and reaching out to some people that uh, maybe uh, haven't tried curling. So we're growing uh, in an area that a lot of clubs aren't growing in, and that's kind of that twenty-five to forty category, uh, getting some new young young blood into the building. Has, has it always been that way for the for the club, uh, Jock? Did you have? Has it always been great years every every year, getting more and more members, or have you had some downtime? Absolutely. It's a matter of just playing to the uh, the way the world's changing. You know, people, like I said, used to be uh, three days a week curling and they'd smoke on the ice and they'd drink late into the morning. And <laughs> and now it's kind of a little bit cleaner up uh, kind of thing. It's people want to enjoy uh, their time out, but it's more of a family type situation where people are uh, coming down and curling once a week and maybe doing other activities with their family other days of the week. So that 25 to 40 year old market you know, is, is uh, the demographic we're really looking for. And we're just trying to get people to fill those holes. You know, instead of a thousand members curling, you know, two, three times a week, we've got 1,500 that are curling once a week. And it's it's a great way to go. Uh, Jock, we had a good discussion. The Hot Rock Topics was about the residency rule. You've been around a long time. Uh, it's a very lively discussion. There was a big announcement this week. Brad Gushu's, you know, changing his team. He's getting EJ Harden from Northern Ontario et cetera, et cetera, who can play in what province. What are your thoughts on the residency rule and the Briar and a national championship and who goes to the Worlds? Well, you know, that's a tough one because nobody doesn't want to see the best teams out there. But for me, what we're doing is we are uh, chopping ourselves off of the knees. We're taking away uh, any chance of any team going to the Briar. In my world, it looks like there's a professional circuit which should maintain their rules with no residency rules. Have a professional league, have professional play, have the slams doing what they do really well, which is provide amazing entertainment. But if you want to go to the Briar, we're kind of getting away from it. We're making it more professional. To me, you could have two championships. One would be for everybody who wants to play by the residency rules and then the other one. And that would encourage more people to play, which is all I'm interested in. I want people to play. I want people to watch curling on TV. I want people to really enjoy the game instead of watching professionals all the time. So the Briar has always been that kind of the culmination of the champions of the best club curlers. So go back to clubs, make your residency rule. You got to curl in the same club. That's me. That's the way I look at it. And then have a professional circuit that they can be from anywhere they want to be. I don't really care, mm -hmm. but keep it away from the Briar. And then if you wanted to determine a world and Olympic champion with the professional players, you could do it with the the Briar and Scotty winners, you could do it with both and make it a separate championships to declare who goes to the Worlds and who goes to the Olympics. And that way there's no real problem with residency. And let, you know, let's face facts. Most of the club curlers aren't out on the slam tour. I would bet you if you pulled those guys, none of them play in a league. So really they don't represent a club or even a province anymore. And I'm what I'm finding is deep down inside my, my curlers, and I got over a thousand of them, they really don't care. They really don't care about residency rule because none of them are, are playing at that level. Well, good stuff. It's lively. Let's bring in your longtime friend, Kevin. Kev, you're there. You got lots of stuff. You, you and Jock have history. What? And I want some stories about the sort of crazy history. Well, there's not a lot of crazy <laughs> history, Jimmy, with Jock and I, I don't think. But but you make a lot of sense there, Jock, talking about the residency rule and, and what to do with the teams that are trying to compete out of Canada with Nicodine and Bruce Mowat and and on those super good teams and uh, and Terranzoni and, and and continue on with Hasselborg and so on. The players from Canada that have to compete with them, 
they need to be very professional. Now, does that mean that they're making seven figures? No, but that means that they need to take the game like that. Otherwise, you can't compete. So you're right. The separation between the the really good club curler, there's lots of in Canada and they're terrific players, but the difference between them and the ones who practice every single day and then travel worldwide every week, that's probably going to need down the road to be a separation between the two. And I, I just don't know how, how you could possibly do it without separating the pros from, from the amateurs. And I guess that just makes sense. One thing I want to talk to you about, Jock, and that's from the club side. You mentioned you want to bring in people into your club that have never curled, that don't curl. I guess uh, what I would like to ask is how do you manage to get to them? How do you reach these individual groups and people who have never curled, but once they get in the club, they love it. So how do, how do you do that, Jock? For us, we've got a lot of prongs, you know, a prong approach. My first thing is, is that we're a constant feed on the radio nonstop. I've got radio commercials running in, in seven different stations in the Kelowna area. So we're always on air, you know, so you can't miss us. That helps a lot. We run a lot of open houses for free. Plus we run uh, lessons on a nonstop basis. And the big thing for us, I think, is the fact that, you know, a lot of places run open houses and run clinics, but then they have nowhere to put the players afterwards. Well, we always make sure that when we run something that we have an opportunity them for uh, to immediately go into a league or into something, which is our novice leagues, to play right away. There's no point in running an open house in March and then saying, see you next October, because they're going to forget. You need to run something in October, September, and then maybe again at Christmas time and make sure you got a league to put them into. You got someone who's willing to take them on and give them lessons. So it's just, it's not just getting them into tri curling, it's getting to follow through and keeping in constant touch with them and then getting them onto the ice playing a real game. So Jock, when you're talking about this, then you're talking about September, October, something at the start of the year, getting them on the ice and then in some sort of a novice league or at Christmas. So are you running leagues that are sort of half year or quarter year or a certain amount of weeks? What, what do you mean by that? Absolutely. With our novice leagues, which is kind of your introductory, we've got we're seven or eight novice leagues, over 900 players are in those leagues combined and there's a fall league that runs October to December and then there's another one that starts up same date same times but it all starts all over again in January and runs to March plus our snowbirds in the daytime we actually divide our season into quarters so those guys are five-week leagues in the daytime curling so we do offer half or quarter down to a quarter of a season that makes sense to me though jock the snowbirds the people that or, or the beginners, they, they just want to take it on for a few weeks and see if they like it. I think it's a great idea. Warren, go ahead. Great. Thanks for joining us, Chuck. And let's talk about a few things. First of all, we're coming out of COVID, and uh, I guess we're getting back to normal more or less. How has that impacted your club? Are things uh, pretty much operating normal towards the end of the year, or how has that all come out uh, for you guys? I mean, by the end of the season, we were back to normal. What I noticed more than anything, my leagues, I want to say we're around 85 or 90% where they were pre-COVID, which is great because there's still people out there that either haven't vaccinated for any reason or just didn't feel comfortable coming back into the building. So I'm expecting us to be pretty close to 100% coming in this year. But the big notice I saw was bond spiels. They weren't happening until late January this year. People started to put bond spiels back on and the appetite was huge. We ran a bond spiel. You know, we were just going to run a little 24 team. I had to expand it to 36 teams and then I finally went, okay, we can squeeze a few more and we end up with 42 teams in our bond spiel at the end of March. 
and that was just because straight up demand was there and uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand for bond spiel so i'm thinking next year could be the greatest bond spiel year ever if people go out and start putting them on and feel healthy enough to to play in them that's great so everybody understands let's talk about the size of your club how many members, how many sheets of ice, uh, what kind of rentals do you have to the corporate world? Just tell us about your whole operation, how it, how it functions. Well, we're a pretty big club. So uh, Red Deer and the Cali Club are the only two other 12-sheeters in, uh, in Canada anymore. So we start late compared to some clubs. We start in uh, the beginning, right at the beginning of October, what we call is the end of golf season, not the beginning of curling season. And we run right till the end of March. And again, because of golf, a lot of our members are out on the golf course. We've got over, uh, pre-COVID, we had well over 1,200 members uh, or active curlers in the building. We have fixed leagues. A lot of clubs, uh, when I moved from uh, back east, uh, I used to manage Oakville, was, you know, you join as a member and you can play as many games as you want in a week, which isn't great for fitting more members in. What we do is we do a fixed night. So you're playing at the same time each week and you join one league. And if you want to join a second league on another night, then you pay a little extra and you go into that league as well. What it does is it gets you uh, lots of people that want to play once a week. And when people play once a week, they uh, want to enjoy the restaurant, uh, the bar a little more than if they played three times a week. So we, uh, we have a really great food service with a full service restaurant that's our own that we take care of and a full service bar and lounge. So um, we're kind of a full service facility here at the club. When spring rolls around, starting because of COVID, we put pickleball in and we have pickleball courts uh, that are uh, painted onto the floor. And then we switch over if we've got trade shows or major events, we put them right over top of the ice floor as well all through the summer. And we've talked to you before, you're an advocate of doubles and triples. And you want to bring us up to date on exactly how those two entities are working in your club and, and what you see for the future with regard to both doubles and triples. You know, I love triples. Doubles is fun. Triples, I think, is perfect. But we're fine. We're struggling to get people to play in both of those. And it's simply because the time slots, with our leagues being really full, it's where can I fit them in? I want them in there. It, there's no doubt about it. But the time slots aren't as convenient. So next fall... When I do it and I launch them back again, they're going to be in a different time slot trying to get more people to play. I think the triples is absolutely perfect for junior programs. I can't think of anything better than for a junior program because you only need six kids and, and you get to play with a different kid all the time. And what we do with our triples is we rotate the positions. You've got a well-rounded team. So you're playing two ends of skip and then you're rotated to, to the second or third or lead. So we play it a little bit differently that way. And uh, it's awesome. And we get a lot of enthusiasm for it because it means you got a, a little better balance on your team. So we're talking triples and doubles. Doubles, of course, has taken off. It's it's now got a national championship, but triples doesn't seem to have really gone much beyond the club level. Do you think this should be worked into becoming an actual championship, or do you think it should just stay at the club level? What's your thoughts? You know, I, I think it'd be a great national and world championship. Um, again, I like the rotating of positions because it makes it a better, more rounded team. I like any opportunity to use the same curling ice and the same building for multiple sports, and I think kind of that's where doubles came from trying to use the Olympic ice for more than just one medal. And so I think it's the same thing here. Fill every hole. And you know what? It's it's interesting. It's fun. It's different. Anything we can do to make the game more exciting and more user-friendly is the way to go. So let's talk about instruction for a moment. You and Kevin are going to be doing some uh, clinics. 
camps in Kelowna this summer. Do you want to tell us exactly what's going on and how people might become involved? Yeah, we're pretty excited here. Uh, I get to work with Kevin again, and the Kelowna Curling Club is hosting its 80th anniversary, and it's a big summer spiel. We're hoping for 80 teams. And what we really like is in the past, pre-COVID, we were running both an adult camp before the bond spiel and then a uh, youth camp immediately following the bond spiel. So it gives us an opportunity for people to try it. Um, and what I really like about working with Kevin is that uh, you're getting the player's perspective. You're not just getting an instructor's perspective, but you're getting the players. So that's what Kevin likes to bring out is some players. And we, uh, you learn from the best. You're learning from what's actually happening out onto the ice during a curling game. So early July, we've got our adult camp you can register for. And then immediately put your skills uh, to the test by playing in our summer spiel. And then we've got our youth camp, which is a little more intense, a little more oriented towards the youth and again you got some great players coming out to work with Kevin and I in that camp so it's pretty exciting and uh, the summer spiel just really caps it all off so it's a great summer and it's a great learning opportunity for adults to improve their skills and for the youth to look forward to what they could be and uh, see if they can fulfill some of those potentials by working with some of the best players in the world. So who are some of the players that are going to be working with you? Tyler Tardy from British Columbia coming in and uh, Matt Dunstone will be coming in as well. Uh, and Matt, uh, Saskatchewan slash BC guy as well. And then uh, on the ladies side, we've got Aaron Pincott um, and Desiree Haas. And of course, Kark Martin. It wouldn't be the same without <laughs> Kark here. That's a pretty impressive lineup. So I'm looking at this whole instruction thing. I've been trying to find out a lot of information here in the last week or so, and it's been a bit of a struggle. I'm, I'm a little confused still exactly what is going on, but let's talk about within your club. You've got instructors. Are they certified? How did they become certified? How often do instructors within your club do clinics? Is there a, a teacher, instructor that can be available at any time if somebody wants some uh, points? Well, you know, for us, uh, it's for me, it's important. I mean, I'm a certified level three, but they've changed the way it's done now. Um, it used to be in levels and you had to accomplish each, you know, a certain thing to uh, get to that level, level one, two or three, and now four and five. But uh, they've changed a little bit and they've streamed it a little more towards what they call club coach or competition coach. All our coaches that we're, we work with have some level of certification no matter what. We're running about 15 clinics now a year. It's incredible how many clinics we've been doing because uh, the demand is out there for people to try and learn how to curl properly. So it is feeding the system really well. So we run our open houses with some instructors and it's kind of a taster just to come out and try it. And then we run our clinics and usually there's 12 to 15 people in each clinic and all of our instructors are qualified, certified instructors. Really their focus is on uh, what they call it club, but I call it instructing because they're not coaches. They're meant to be an instructor to teach people how to uh, enjoy the game at a, at a better skill level and not necessarily working with a team, but working with a group of people that really want to learn. So we run those throughout the season. I was, uh, the demand was high and we were literally, people were looking to improve their skills. And so we were running clinics right up till the beginning of March. And uh, those coaches are also available as a kind of like a golf coach. You can book an hour with them and, and pay them and, uh, and enjoy some really good instruction out there on the ice to improve your skills. Just uh, maybe discuss a little further with regard to how well we maybe advertise about learning how to curl. I was doing a little research, and I'll ask you about your club, but I, I looked at three provincial associations with regard to their websites. And if I was just looking to find out something about this sport, how would I do it? So 
two of them, I became somewhat confused. I will see the third one, and I won't mention the province. It was pretty good because on the front it said, learn to curl. And as soon as I clicked that, it led me through an interesting pathway. Looking at other sports, I went on to Golf BC. I went on to Tennis BC. And right in front of the page, it's learn to golf, learn to play tennis, and then a really good stream to follow through. Are we doing all this as good as we, we could be right now with regard to websites for associations and clubs? Or what's your thoughts? Well, I'm doing it. I don't think the associations are doing it. I mean, I go on to our pertinent ones for me, our national one and our provincial one uh, on a regular basis. And that's not what jumps out at me. Kelowna Curling Club has a site that says want to learn how to curl and you jump onto it. And you can go through various courses. There's a lot of little tiny clubs out there that aren't don't have the instructors and don't have the even the managers you know they're volunteer run clubs and and good on them they're the heart and soul of the of curling but we don't have an opportunity for these little towns to to teach and and that's something that the provincial and the national organization needs to look at is how do we make sure that those programs get to the little clubs get to all the clubs not just the little ones but all the clubs should be having an opportunity to learn from a professional instructor. And I think we're failing there. I, I look at, at golf and tennis, all their, their coaches are certified and they make sure that there's access to them in some way or another. Kelowna, you know, is kind of the heart of the interior. A lot of people that are asking our instructors to go to their little clubs because they just don't have anybody. So I think that's something that should actually be a program, not just, hey, let's reach out to Kelowna, but let's, hey, let's reach out to our associations and let's get some bodies out here, even if it's once a month, to come out and give us some pointers or help new people learn how to curl. Yeah, I'm just looking at the whole system, and uh, I find it a little bit confusing having delved into it fairly deep. It's changed a lot from back in the days when I was involved with it. But uh, I, I, again, I, I don't think the communication is probably as good as it needs to be. I think it's something that everybody, that is the national organizations and the provincial ones, need to probably get together on a little more so. And of course, I think, again, the provincial ones are the ones that have to implement this stuff and, uh, as you suggest, coordinate with the clubs. Well, you know what? That brings me back to when I was a kid, Warren. That's quite a while ago now. But I remember in Law Heed, so the town I'm from is about a 200-person town, so 30, 35 members of the two-sheeter club that we had. So we didn't have the opportunity to have instruction really inside the club because the club wasn't big enough. But I remember, I, I don't know who it was, who brought it out. I was young. But they had um, curling schools. It was Curling Canada Level 1. or so. I still have the certificate, for goodness sakes. I learned to curl, came in once a year, I think. I don't think it was more than that. Into Law Heat itself, though. I don't know who sent it out. I don't know how it happened that these group of instructors, I think it was four instructors, would come out to the club, and we had to pay a fee. And that's how the instructors got paid. And they would come to these little towns, like where I'm from, you know, once a year, once every couple of years. And it was just really, really good. And they were, they were, they were busy. Like they were oh, as busy as you can be for a town that has, you know, 200 people, but it was really good. And I remember that uh, really well. So we need to get that going again. Who did it back then, Warren? Maybe it was even you. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was even you on the ice. I don't, I don't know. I was a kid, but do you know, uh, for, and I've got something else to ask uh, Jock, but Warren, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I certainly do. That was the original Curl Canada program. And as Jack suggested, it was developed in levels one, two, and three. It was national in scope. Uh, we coordinated the whole thing at the national end, but it was the individual provinces and associations that were absolutely the people implemented. And uh, people were qualified at various levels, depending upon what they were going to teach. And things have changed a little bit. And I, I'm still trying to find out more about it all. A lot of emphasis has been on coaching. And it seems to be kind of a blurred line between coaching and instructing. 
Whereas at one point in time, it was a very probably clear line. Curling is much like golf in the fact that probably we need instructors more than we need coaches because most people aren't going to be at the point they need a coach. But the whole emphasis is now on coaching, which, of course, that's the direction from the National Coaching Certification Program as to how things work. Hey, uh, Jock, I want to ask you one more thing uh, before we let you go here. And that's the idea of a social member. Uh, in your case, and, and not not all clubs, but some clubs across Canada have terrific restaurants, bars, facilities outside of just being on the ice. Because I, I don't I don't curl anymore. And I'm not really excited to curl in the leagues or anything like that anymore. But I like to support our sport. So at the Derek Club, where, where Sean and I are members, she's actually an athletic member. So she goes in there and does whatever she wants to do, yoga and workout and all that kind of stuff. For me, I'm a social member, period. So what I do, I go there and I have dinner and have cocktails and I'll go visit with people and and that's that's my membership at that club. Is that something that you have in Kelowna? Is that something we should have at clubs across Canada so that I'm still welcome to come to the club? That's where I practiced for the last 10, 15 years of my career was at the Derrick. I was there every day. But now I don't practice anymore, but I still want to be at the club. I still want to talk to everybody and still be friends with everybody. So I'm a social member. And even maybe older guys who, you know, you, you can't curl anymore, so... You're not a member anymore. Well, you should still be a member if you want to be, but but you, but you don't curl. Do you have that available, Jock? We do, Kev. You know what you're talking about is is the members. I've, you know, and it's got nothing to do with your age here. But I've got a lot of people that grow through their their curling years or because of injuries, and they still come down. Um, what we offer here is is that we have people that come and they play cards on a regular basis. They shoot pool on a regular basis. They play in our dart league on a regular basis, and they enjoy the facilities. Right? We offer more than just the curling. It's and that, to be honest, this is why we all played the game. It was the social aspect of it. We spent more time talking about curling off the ice than we, you know, we spent on the ice. And I think that's the single most important part of the game that people forget is that you have to have the social activity, the interaction, and that's what we all missed during COVID. You need to be. A social facility you're a community you're a, you're a family to these people and people don't want to lose that so we have those opportunities for people to be a member of the club if they so choose and still use the facilities and come down and see their friends uh, or meet new people it doesn't really matter curlers are probably one of the most friendly group of people you're ever going to find so on a regular basis including in the summer curlers come down here just to hang out uh, watch people play pickleball or they play ping pong or or air hockey or something just to do an activity and hang out at the curling club so how many would you have of people like that like a ballpark ballpark's good enough people that just stop in and have a glass of wine or whatever i've got hundreds that come in here that are not members but just love to use the facility we don't push them to becoming a social member we have you know under 100 social members but people are welcome to come and use the facility and they do we don't make them get a membership just to use the facility you're welcome to come down and use the facility anytime because we're open to the public uh jock before we go lots to talk about league play the colonial curling club is one of the most successful what happens jock with individuals who walk in, whether they're newbies or, or semi-experienced, and they say, I want to curl, uh, and I want to curl in a league. Do they have to come as a team, or can you accommodate those guys? League play, is is it 10 ends? Is it 8 ends? Do I only have to sweep? Can I get to skip? How, how does all that work, your league play? Jim, that's a great question. I am getting constant uh, people asking, hey, right now, yesterday I answered a question to someone. It's like a social or a classifieds. Uh, for people that have played or not played before, looking to get on a team, post you up there on our website, and it's literally called Unassigned Players. Teams go looking for players there. Players go looking for teams there. 
they call each other, they interact on that site and uh, it gives them an opportunity to find a team. So you don't have to enter as a team. In October, right away, we do a lot of, we're heavy loaded, front loaded with instruction in October and in January so that people can learn how to curl right away and feel like they're ready to play. And so we wanna make sure that they're out there safely with some good quality instruction. And so what we try to do is the, the third thing is get them to sign up for our newsletter. It's kind of a three prong attack to try and get people to in the door, learn how to curl, get them on a team. And what we do is when the season is about to start, we'll go through that unassigned players list and we'll follow up with a phone call. Hey, have you got yourself on a team yet? Can we take you off the list? No, you haven't. Okay, let me see if we can help you get on a team. So then we're a little more proactive uh, right at the start of curling season trying to get people. But you know what? I want to say honestly, 90 to 95% get on a team simply by putting their name up there especially the novices, and they get picked up very easily, and it's only a few at the end that we have to help them get onto a team. Is it, is it all 10-end games or 8-ends, and does everyone throw two rocks, four-man four teams, three-men? How does that work? So for us, it's uh, it's eight ends, except for our novice leagues are six ends. What we're finding with the new rules, with the five rock rule, it slowed the play of the games down back when I was a youth and there was no free guard zone. Two hours and 15 minutes, you could get 10 ends in without any difficulty. Most club curlers are struggling right now to get eight ends in in two hours. And I want to say 90% of the teams only get seven ends or less in. The novices, what we do is uh, it's all six ends. And what we do with our novice leagues, it's a little bit different, is we allow our novice leagues to change positions during the game. So in between ends, you can rotate your positions without any difficulty. We still make them. Everyone throws. If you're on the ice, you got to throw two rocks and you, you take your turn sweeping just like everybody else. And then in our regular leagues, the non-novice leagues, it's, it's eight ends of play in two hours. We give them a two-hour time limit. And it's the same traditional, you can't rotate positions. Everybody throws two rocks. Kev, uh, you and I can have, and Warren, we can have the uh, Iron Man, Kevin. If we went to the Kelowna Club, it would be darts, crib, and then we'll shoot some pool. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Okay, Hanson, are you in? I'll kick your ass, you guys, at darts. I'm very good. Uh, Jock. Jock, this has been great. Congratulations on such a successful run as the manager. 30 years. Looks like Kelowna has it going on. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on, Jock. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Have a great summer. Thanks a million. Hey, thanks, Jock. Thanks, Jock. Good luck. See you, Jock. Once upon a time, there was a story from Kevin Martin. Uh, we do this uh, each and every show. Storytime is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Go back in time, Kev, for you. Give us, give us your story this week. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the heated toilet seat and uh, jet lag. And that, that, and that was in Japan. Of course we were. <laughs> and uh, after doing that, I said, oh, I have got to talk about one of my favorite sports in the whole world. And that's something they play in Japan. It's called mallet golf. Mallet golf. So what it is, there is an 18-hole mallet golf course right beside where we curled in Okaya in, in Japan. And I don't know if everybody's heard about mallet golf. I had never seen it or heard about it. What it is on the side of a mountain there, it's kind of like Banff, I guess, is kind of where we were. Um, I believe the place was called the Yamabiko Hockey Center. And uh, on the side of the mountain, these mallet golf courses are built right on the side of the mountain. And they're about maybe four to six feet wide, the fairway. And you've got a mallet and a ball 
and to kind of keep it so that the ball won't roll down the mountain. So of course you get aggressive and you try to get hit it too hard. It'll roll off of the path, off of the fairway, but there's no rough, Jimmy. It's down the mountain. This is, sounds crazy. <laughs> if your ball goes down the mountain, you've got to climb down the mountain to go get it. And then you got to come up and drop it back on the, the fairway, but there's no grass. This is all, it's the side of a mountain. So it's all rock sticking out of right. and bush and, and it's really fun. And, and then you, you add a stroke and you carry on and you play 18 holes. And uh, we would do it almost every day. We'd go and grab the mallets and grab the balls and go play mallet golf. And it was the most fun thing ever. I love the game. And you basically don't pay much, a couple bucks to play because there's no upkeep to this course. It's, it's just built out of the side of the mountain. And some of the holes, the par fives would be oh, 80 yards, something like that, 80 yards. But they, but they twist and turn through the roots and rocks and, and down, like down steep hills and then up hills and to the green. And the green is kind of a, a flattened area of dirt and, and there's, there's a hole. And it is so much fun. Mellet golf. Look it up, you guys. It's an extremely uh, interesting sport. I don't know about you, Warren, but it may be fun, Kev, but it sounds like a really dumb game. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. Jimmy, I so, promise you would love it. Okay. I guarantee it. Okay. You'd love it. And and the the, the pars are, are legit. Like, if you par a par four, you've done well. They're hard. I'm just thinking more than someone had a bunch of sake when they invented that game. Okay. <laughs> well, that's what you think about real golf. Somebody must have had too much, too much <laughs> scotch. True. It's a crazy game. Okay. Hans and I are going to try a little mallet golf. Uh, great stuff. That that's I, I never knew that, obviously. Uh, Storytime each and every week is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing. Uh, that's a wrap, fellas. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you to Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies. Our main go-to is our Facebook uh, group, our Facebook page. Uh, Warren, you wrote a great article there, a little piece about the residency rule. I read it. Uh, it's totally interesting. Of course, we talked about that this week. Uh, always seems to be a lively topic. Reminder again, if you want to email us, which we love to get, insidecurling at gmail.com. Kevin, go sharpen your mallets uh, for your next uh, mountain, mallet, whatever it's called. You have to get back to Japan to play. I've never seen it anywhere else in the world, okay. Jimmy, other than Japan. Warren, I'll meet you in Whistler. We'll go, we'll go try some mallet golf. Maybe we should have a croquet championship this summer. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I'm just getting my head around the fact that pickleball's for really old people, you know. You're playing it, aren't you, Kevin? Huh? Oh, I love it. Yep. Okay. Oh, boy. It's fun. <laughs> Uh, inside pickleball, inside mallet golf, and inside curling. We bring it all to you. Take it easy, boys. We'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.